Good morning. My name is Kim Jordan. This morning's passage comes from 1 Samuel chapter 22. It can be found on page 235 in the Black Chair Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. In addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpeh of Moab, where he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. So he left them in the care of the king of Moab, and they stayed with him the whole time David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Don't stay in the stronghold. Leave and return to the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. At that time, Saul was in Gibeah, sitting under the tamarisk tree at the high place. His spirit spear was in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants, Listen, men of Benjamin, is Jesse's son going to give all you fields and vineyards? Do you think he'll make all your commanders make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That's why all of you have conspired against me. Nobody tells me when my own son makes a covenant with Jesse's son. None of you cares about me or tells me that my son has stirred up my own servant to wait in ambush for me, as is the case today. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was in charge of Saul's servants, answered. I saw Jesse's son come to Elimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Elimelech inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions. He also gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. The king sent messengers to summon the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family, who were priests in Nob. All of them came to the king. Then Saul said, Listen, son of Ahitub, I'm at your servant service, my lord, he said. Saul asked him, Why do you and Jesse's sons conspire against me? You gave him bread and a sword and inquired of God for him so he could rise up against me and wait in ambush, as is the case today. Ahimelech replied to the king, Who among all your servants is as faithful as David? He is the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and honored in your house. Was today the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Please don't let the king make an accusation against your servant or any of my father's family, for your servant didn't have any idea about all of this. But the king said, You will die, Elimelech, you and your father's whole family. Then the king ordered the guard standing by him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they sided with David. For they knew he was fleeing, but they didn't tell me. But the king's servants would not lift a hand to execute the priests of the Lord. So the king said to Doeg, go and execute the priests. So Doeg the Edomite went and executed the priests himself. On that day, he killed 85 men who wore linen ephods. He also struck down Nob, the city of the priests, with the sword. Both men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. However, one of the sons of Elimelech, son of a high tub, escaped. His name was Abiathar, and he fled to David. 
Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew that Doeg the Edomite was there that day and that he was sure to report to Saul. I myself am responsible for the lives of everyone in your father's family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid, for the one who wants to take my life will take your life. You will be safe with me. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. My name is Godwin. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors here at Faith Church. So, friends, for as long as we've had this book in front of us, this Bible, people have been curious about the Antichrist, this human figure who rises to power and leads people in a huge rebellion against God, who is guilty of slaughtering God's people. In nearly every Christian age, people ask this question, who is the Antichrist? And so through history, we have many leading candidates, whether it was the Roman Emperor Nero or Napoleon or a little bit closer to modern times, Hitler, Martin Luther, Ronald Reagan, Obama. And so what does the Bible teach us about the Antichrist? Scriptures say, yes, there will be an Antichrist, but actually at the end of this age, there will be this kind of prominent figure, but there won't be just one Antichrist at the end. There will be many leading up to the end. First John mentions this several times. Here's First John 2, 18. It says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists will come. So an Antichrist is a false teacher about God, someone who acts violently against God's people, someone who, despite having great power, uh, deceives and harms and opposes God's purposes. Now, in our passage in front of us here, 1 Samuel chapter 22, and really as we scan across the story of Saul in particular, we see a crystal clear example of a Antichrist. And opposite of Saul, we have the Christ. In David, you guys know that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Christ is a title, something like king or messiah. David was a Christ, a messianic king-like man who God would use to protect his people and save his people, but who would eventually overthrow and throw down, of course, the Antichrist. And we see that happening even in our story. Now, in our story before us today, 1 Samuel chapter 22, as well as in our modern lives, it often feels like aligning ourselves with the true Christ is folly, while aligning ourselves with worldly power or the antichrist of this world, that's where true security lies. We live in an age where true power is often hidden and diminished, and false power is often perverted and elevated. Our story this morning explores these sorts of themes. Here's the main point. You'll see it on the screen as well as in your bulletin. Really simple. You will only be safe with the Christ. You will only be safe with the Christ. Our story this morning continues the uh, enthralling tale of David, God's anointed. Saul, the king chosen by Israel, is still on the throne. He's trying to kill David. David is on the run. And as we've kind of followed closely the terrain of David's story, we can see how his story prepares us for the story of his greater son, Jesus. We're going to see more of that today. 
I want to point out three movements in this story. The first movement, you'll see it on your screen in just a moment. And while you're kind of gathering yourself, and if you're taking notes, please jot these movements down. The first movement, the Christ in weakness, as we look at the first scene, verses one through five. I wanted to mention uh, just a number of pastors that have kind of influenced my understanding of 1 Samuel as we've been working through this. Uh, you can see some work cited in your notes as well uh, for commentators, but Kevin DeYoung, Nick Gatsky, Sinclair Ferguson, I commend their ministries to you, their writings to you. Uh, they've been of great help. So the first thing we see here as we're looking at verses 1 through 5 is the Christ in weakness. Our story begins with David, of course, fleeing Goliath's hometown Gath, and he ventures to this cave in Adullam. Now, caves are associated in the Bible with death since caves were often used as tombs. And so here David was driven from Saul's palace, driven from his home, driven from his own people, utterly deprived with little prospects or provisions save for some priestly bread. And he ventures to this cave. And though he lived in a cave for a time, as we'll soon see, David would rise from this grave. Notice with me verse 1. His family shows up, and it makes sense. For all who were associated with David, of course, were likely persecuted by the house of Saul. They were there to seek sanctuary and respite. Where else could they go, right? Life in the wilderness would be too difficult for these aged parents. David's kind of out in the wilderness, out in the caves, right? And so David kindly shows them mercy as he entrusts them, wait a second, to the care of the Gentile king, the, the Moabite king. That's kind of strange, right? Well, we can't forget that David's great-great-grandmother is... Ruth, yeah, who is a Moabitess. That's right. So David's seeking safety for his parents in his own lineage from someone who has shown kind of faithfulness, right? Now, who else would gather themselves with David? Notice verse 2 with me. In addition, every man who was desperate in debt or discontented rallied around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. Here comes quite the motley crew. You know, I mean, a kaleidoscope of social riffraff and malcontents. And, and these guys were the outcasts of Israel. And they, they, they come to this outlaw king who's living on the societal margins in this tomb. And these were the, the people who were on the fringes of Saul's kingdom. Probably hadn't always been that way. Maybe they were merchants or farmers or laborers. We don't know. But they didn't fit into Saul's recent schemes and plans. And so they kind of rebelled against him and they became these outcasts. And so these men, as they gathered with David, they, they had a great need. Notice the three Ds of verse 2. They were desperate. They were in debt. They were discontented. And they gathered with David. This isn't a group you want to start a rebellion with, of course, right? I mean, probably not the most sophisticated, the most accomplished group of people. But here they are. Well, it sounds a lot like the types of people who gathered to Jesus, right? We can just kind of scan across the opening chapters of the Gospel of Mark, what we've recently been studying. We think of the leper of chapter 1, destined for begging, living in a leper colony, but Jesus cleanses him and he joins the rank of the kingdom of Christ. Chapter 2, you've got this paralytic whom Jesus heals, Levi the tax collector, the outcast of his society because he's working for the Romans, and Jesus calls him. Think about the other disciples, Mark chapter 3, these ordinary working class men unimpressive, regular dudes, right? And the, the list goes on and on. In chapter 5, we see the Gentile demoniac, 
In chapter 7, we see the Syrophoenician woman, the Gentile deaf man. Jesus doesn't just kind of occasionally gather the misfits and pursue the misfits. It seems like it's his aim to especially gather and pursue the misfits. Now, why would that be the case? Well, I think it's, he's, he's interested in gathering those who recognize their neediness. Neediness is the stipulation. Neediness is the requirement for entrance into the kingdom of God, not performance or power or pedigree, but simply knowing that I am desperate before a holy God. I'm in debt to sin. I am discontent as I'm considering this world around me. So there's something about this supposed weak Christ that provides for those in great need. Let me ask you, friends, do you feel like an outcast sometimes? Others look at you maybe with a sideways glance or a glare. Maybe you've made some bad decisions in the past, you know, and you kind of bear the consequences of that. You, you have a certain letter on your chest, perhaps. Maybe you feel alienated from God or alienated from others, and you wonder to yourself, is there any way to be brought from the far away places back? Well, friends, what's the answer to this? Well, do you have a real sense of your utter neediness. Can you say with the men who gathered to David, I am desperate, I am in debt of sin, I am discontent with this worldly life. Can you say that? If you can gather to Christ in your need, you will be a person of hope. And so let me just encourage you, just this, as we're kind of getting warmed up here, let me just encourage you, draw near, draw near to God's anointed son, Jesus. Gather to him, let him direct your way forward. And notice among the men that joined David was this prophet named Gad. Notice verse 5. And God would speak through this prophet and direct David and his kind of merry men back into the forest, right? It feels kind of like Robin Hood. Yeah, Robin Hood and his kind of mighty men in the forest, right? You see that kind of happening here. And so by all accounts, as we examine the narrative details of the story, it's obvious that we have a king in weakness, don't we? a king in rather small circumstances, a Christ in the wilderness, a Christ who's in a tomb, a king with a rather shabby court of outcasts and misfits. Friends, is this not just like our Lord Jesus? I mean, he too lived on the margins. He too was homeless for a time. Remember, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He too was hated. He too was hunted. And all of this meant that Jesus did not look like a king. But friends, we need to feel a great dissonance between what the world thinks of as a king and the life texture of the one whom we call our king. Now, I want you to think about this with me. It's in the very nature of Jesus, in his weaknesses, in his supposed weakness, to work for your safety and respite, right? We see that happening here. So we see this kind of messianic mold taking shape with David, and, and we see all of, all of this kind of supposed weakness. He's not looking powerful, and yet he's doing good to God's people, right? Was it not Jesus who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. That's right. He didn't say that from the heights of Jewish or Roman political power. He was a big religious annoyance at the time with kind of this meager following. 
And so, so, so Jesus, though weak and foolish in the world's eyes, he does good to us, doesn't he? He provides rest for us, a place of solace and sanctuary. That brings us to kind of the second scene, really the bulk of our passage. And what we see in this passage is the antichrist in power. So we've looked at the Christ in weakness. Now we're going to look at the antichrist in power. So put your eyes on verses 6 through 19. And notice with me, the scene has dramatically shifted from a cave in a forest. Now we're on a high hill in Gibeah, from the low places to the high places, from a place of weakness and embarrassment a place of strength and honor. I mean, notice David's hiding in a cave. Now he's gathering his merry men in a forest, right? Meanwhile, Saul's sipping a martini under a shaded tree, holding a court, holding a spear with his sparkling attendants all gathered around him. I mean, what a picture of security and brawn and muscle and vigor, right? Well, then the guy goes and opens his mouth. (laughs) Verses seven and eight. Let's read these verses together. He says this, Listen, men of Benjamin, is Jesse's son going to give all of you fields and vineyards? Do you think he'll make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That's why all of you have conspired against me. Nobody tells me when my own son makes a covenant with Jesse's son. None of you cares about me or tells me that my son has stirred up my own servant to wait in ambush for me, as is the case today. (laughs) Oh, man. It turns out he's been giving his folks lands and vineyards to try to kind of curry favor with them. He's trying to buy their love, right? But, but, but from Saul's very skewed perspective, in spite of these gifts, his men were disloyal. None of them had reported about David. You know, they're all against me. They're conspiring against me. He's, his paranoia and pettiness were at an all-time high. Saul's essentially saying, listen, if you follow me, I'm going to give you the world. You want a vineyard? You want a new position? You want some more land? You want a farm? Hey, I'm going to give that to you. He's trying to gain their devotion. And this isn't uncommon, right? It's a great ploy that our ultimate enemy, Satan, also uses. He will promise you comfort. He will promise you material good. He will promise you worldly possessions, all to garner your devotion. Is this not what Satan did with Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days? At the very end of the temptation uh, scene, right, he brings Jesus to the top of the temple. And what does he say there? He says, I'm going to give you the world, Jesus. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. This is the ploy of our enemy, and he uses it to try to gain our devotion. But we must remember that God saw all of this coming. One of the, the, the nice things about 1 Samuel is as we're kind of walking through, you know, chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, and so forth, and we're starting to see Saul and Samuel and then David, there, there are things earlier that start to take shape and actually kind of have some fulfillment later on. We're going to see that here. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when Israel wanted a king like the nations, God warned them. He said, hey, if you're going to get a king like the nations, he's going to take from you. Do you remember this? He's going to take from, from you all this stuff. In, in chapter 8, verse 11, he's going to take from you vineyards and farms and lands and servants. And so God had told them. God had warned them. And that's exactly what is happening here. This king is going to take from Israel and give it to others to bolster and secure his own power. Saul is becoming the kind of self-serving and unjust king that Samuel 
once feared. And notice he's essentially kind of boasting in this here. Well, the men of Israel weren't willing to inform Saul about David. But then there's this guy named Doeg the Edomite. Our community group affectionately refers to him as Doug the Edomite. So you can do that if you want. And notice uh, it, it describes his ethnicity as, as an Edomite, and that's really important. It matters. He's a Gentile. He's not one of God's people. And the Edomites were historic enemies of Israel. You may have known that if you've read through your Bibles before. And, and, and they're descendants from Esau. And they had refused to let Israel pass through the territory, their own territory, after the Exodus events. And so from that point on, there's kind of this tension and a little bit of, you know, malcontent between these two nations. And so, friends, what, what I want you to see here is that Saul is seated on this phony throne. He's acting like a Gentile king, and he's got a Gentile, and that Gentile is the only person loyal to him. You see that? Here, we've got truly a king like the nations. Saul hears the news about David and Ahimelech, notice, and he becomes very angry. And he sends for the priest, for his whole family, and Ahimelech comes back, and they have this conversation. Ahimelech seems to give a really reasonable explanation. Of course I gave David bread. Of course I helped him. He's your servant. He lives in your house. He's one of your captains. He sits in your court. Oh, yeah, he's married to your daughter. Like, of course I'm going to help him, right? It seems perfectly reasonable. But Saul, notice. He rejects this response. This isn't the first time he rejects reason. I mean, Samuel's been reasoning with him for a number of chapters. Jonathan, his own son, has been reasoning with him, and he, and he kind of went along with it, but then later he didn't, right? So th this is really maybe the height of his rebellion, not just against God's anointed David, but against God himself. And notice what he now commands. He commands the slaughter of God's priests. Friends, this is absolutely unthinkable, isn't it? It's unthinkable that someone who claims to be following God would order the killing of God's consecrated temple workers. It's absolutely unthinkable to, to think that someone who claims to be God's king, who rules on behalf of God over his people, would then slaughter the very ones who mediate God's presence to Israel by sacrifice and by ceremony. It's unthinkable that someone with such meager beginnings, remember he was kind of a no one, uh, kind of son of a farmer, and, and, and yeah, he was tall and good looking, but God made him a king, and, and he hears from God through the prophets, and, and, and he has all these great gifts, but now look at him. He's in a place of such rebellion and such insanity, right? Perhaps this is what the king's guards were thinking. Notice verse 17, you know, they're, they're kind of like, uh, we're not going to do that, right? Notice the end of verse 17. But the king's servants would not lift a hand to execute the priests of the Lord. You know, there's a line. There's a line. And Saul is just leaping over that line, right? Leaping over that line. These are the priests of the Lord. It reminds me of Jesus' words. Perhaps they were thinking kind of the same sort of thing. Jesus said, what good does it prosper a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Friends, in this we see the inner workings of Antichrist. We see the spirit of Antichrist, which can tempt any of us in this room. 
You know, if you ran, uh, kind of scanned across Saul's story arc, we see a character that had a wonderful start. I mean, there was some promise to how uh, his reign began, but, but then just like a little bit of pride and then a little bit of jealousy, right? And, and the sin started to grow in him like kudzu, you know, started to spread like a disease and poison his soul slowly over the course of time. And now look at him in chapter 22. I mean, he's a full-blown narcissist, right? He's thinking that everyone is out to get him. And, 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 and he's become completely paranoid and petty and putting himself in the seat of the victim, which is so ironic because he is going after other people, right? Friends, beware the days of entertaining smaller sins. Every small sin in your life and mine is designed to grow into a field of weeds. That is Satan's aim. Sin is not a static thing. It's very dynamic. Very, very dynamic. It's, it's designed by Satan to destroy your soul, just like it did here with Saul. And so, friends, a small compromise maybe with pride. Oh, I could have done that better than her. A teeny-weeny capitulation towards discontentment or lust or jealousy or defiance, I can turn into a world of hurt, not only for you, not only for other people, but listen, it can break your fellowship with the Lord. How does someone get from Saul in chapter 9 to Saul in chapter 22? Well, you reject several opportunities to repent. Right? Saul had every opportunity to repent to turn from his evil ways, to turn from the ways of these Gentile kings, and to turn towards faith in God and faith in God's anointed David. I mean, they could have been friends. They could have, you know, Saul could have helped train David. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you this question as we're thinking about application. Today, this morning, where are you tempted to reject God's call in your life to repent over a small sin. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, to put to death your sin by the power of the Spirit, right? Paul's instructions to us is, is with regards to sin isn't to, to manage sin or to kind of, hey, let's just make it kind of small and then let's kind of keep it hidden over here in the corner. His commandments to us and therefore God's commandments to us regarding sin is to put it to death. It's to slay sin, and so let me just encourage you, let me exhort you to cut sin at the roots. When it's just a small blade, when it's just a, a small plant, let me encourage you to lean on the Lord, to lean on the power of the Spirit, to cut sin when it's, when it's just, just a little plant. So the guards in our story refused to kill, but Doug the Edomite, notice, 22, 18, and 19, what does he do? Let's read this story. So the king said to Doeg, go and execute the priests. So Doeg the Edomite went and executed the priests himself. On that day, he killed 85 men who wore linen ephods. He also struck down Nob, the city of the priests, with the sword, both men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. Now, it's difficult for us. We're so separated from the world of the text here. It's difficult for us to feel the weightiness of this. But I want you to think with me at what is happening here. This entire city, not just the priests, were engulfed in this kind of atrocious crime against God's consecrated ones, right? Saul's wicked demise leads to essentially 
the genocide of the city. And here's the terrible irony here. Another sign of just how far Saul has fallen. Back in 1 Samuel 15, God told Saul to conduct a holy war against the Amalekites, these Gentiles. Here, what's going on? Saul tells a Gentile to conduct a holy war against God. And in the first holy war, which God called, Saul would spare the best of the sheep and the cattle along with the king. And that's against God's wishes. But here... Do you see what's happening here? No one is spared. And these are God's people. Not even the women, the, the, the infants, the nursing babies, the cattle. The only one who happens to be spared really under the providence of God is this, this son of the priests. He escapes. Friends, Saul has set himself up in the place of God as tyrants do. Saul does the unthinkable. He becomes an antichrist. Antichrist, friends, promise us the pleasures of the world while demanding our allegiance. Antichrist, appear to you as being for you and with you until your allegiance is questioned, right? And then they're going to come after you. Friends, what is our takeaway here? There is no safety with the world. There's no safety with the false Christs of this world and our common enemy who stands behind them. They will hold out empty promises to you. They will whisper lies in your ears. Uh, they're going to try to get you to believe that the world holds a kind of pleasure and peace that's going to satisfy you. Oh, you, you think that Jesus and his church will really help you? You think Jesus and his church are going to be a good refuge for you? Don't, don't deny yourself. Follow your heart. Follow the ideologies of this world. You will be safe with these perspectives. But brothers and sisters, we know better, don't we? We know that these are lies. These are empty promises. We know that when you trade your soul to gain the world, you will lose both the soul and the world. So let me encourage you and exhort you again. Learn to resist the allure of earthly power. Learn to resist the allure of earthly power as a means to finding safety and security. Identify the, the, the influences, the voices of the Antichrist in your life. I don't want to name names. I'm tempted to. But there are names even within the evangelical church, and they're just selling you a bill of goods. They're not proclaiming the gospel as it arises out of this book. Now, let me just encourage you to be discerning and silence those voices. Listen to the voice of the Christ. Listen to his voice. That brings us to our final scene here, verses 20 through 23. And what we see is the subversive kingdom of Christ, the subversive kingdom of the Christ. And, and I love this whole chapter. It's something that can be said about really this whole chapter, and that's there's kind of a, a picture here of ultimate reality, okay? Almost like a parable. So you've got the Christ, you've got the Antichrist, and David, of course, is the anointed one. He's the innocent one. He's despised by the world, but people with need gather to him. Then you have, conversely, Saul, the king of the land, and he seems to have great power. He seems to be innocent. But through many, many choices, he enters into kind of this steep decline that he turns out to be such a perverted version of himself. And so he murders the priests of God, and he set himself up not just against David, but against God. And friends, all who align themselves with this antichrist will be doomed. But 
ultimate reality doesn't end with the Antichrist. It ends with God's Christ, right? Look, at, look with me at verses 20 through 23. Let this encourage you. However, one of the sons of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, escaped. His name was Abiathar, and he fled to David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew that Doeg the Edomite was there that day, and that he was sure to report to Saul. I myself am responsible for the lives of everyone in your father's family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. For the one who wants to take my life wants to take your life. You will be safe with me. Here's the final word of comfort, right? Um, A word of comfort, a word of hope. What do you notice about these verses? What do you notice about how this chapter kind of closes? We quickly notice that there's one priest left. Abiathar, the son of the high priest, Saul has just told his dad, told Ahimelech, you're going to die. I'm going to take out your whole family. David says, notice in verse 23, he says, no, no, stay with me. Remember who's part of this merry band in the forest. You've got David the king, you've got Gad the prophet, and now you've got Abiathar the priest. Saul has ignored the counsel of prophets. He's massacred the priests. He's made a joke out of his kingship. But David, David has a prophet and a priest protected under his kingship. And so here's a picture of the the kingdom of God. Here's a picture of this kind of subversive kingdom of Christ, uh, opposed by the world, hunted by Saul, peopled by rejects, and yet centered on a king, a priest, and a prophet. Would it be so different for David's greater descendant? He would gather fishermen and traders and bandits, It would be the poor in spirit to whom belong the kingdom of Christ. And like David, Jesus and his people would be opposed by the world and hurt by Israel's leaders. But this new kingdom would be centered on a king and a priest and a prophet, all in one person, Jesus. Jesus, as you know, friends, is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And that group of outcasts and rejects will extend Jesus' kingdom to the ends of the earth as they proclaim his name. Do you remember uh, the description of the church in Acts chapter 17? They would turn the world upside down. It would be seen in the city of Corinth where Paul would later write, quote, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. Friends, refuge in the kingdom of God looks like folly to the world, but it makes sense to the people of God. You know, I was just recently at a coffee shop just a few days ago, and I'm kind of interacting with with a few folks that I've seen there often, and we started uh, talking, and, you know, at one point in the conversation, it got to the part where they asked me, hey, what do you do? Always interesting for pastors, right? I said, I'm a pastor. And then, you know, all of a sudden, not everybody there, but a few folks, you just kind of feel them leaning away from me in the conversation and redirecting the conversation this way, right? Kind of happens. The Christian faith doesn't make sense to the world, right? It doesn't make sense that David as a vagabond is a better refuge for God's people than Saul sitting on his throne in Gibeah. To the world, it doesn't make sense that Jesus is a better refuge in his weakness, in his seeming weakness, than the provisions and comforts of this world, and if you are a Christian, if, you, if you've united yourself to Christ by faith and repentance, if you've gathered yourself up to Jesus 
your life too will be vagabond-like. Look at verse 23. I mean, this is just unreal. Look at that second sentence. It says, don't be afraid, for the one who wants to take my life wants to take your life. Doesn't that sound just like something Jesus said? If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If Jesus suffered, you will suffer. Christian, you are an exile. You have been handed a cross. The crown's coming later, right? This subversive kingdom of Christ is distinctly shaped like a cross. You are called to the cruciform life. Now, what do I mean by that? You know, it doesn't always seem like the people of God right now are on the right side. It feels like we're losing. Sometimes it feels like we're unsafe. The world is increasingly hostile to our faith. More and more, it's feeling like, yeah, this world is not our home. How can we not see it in the barrage of sensuality? Just scroll down the news or stroll through the mall or look at the Facebook sidebar. There's little sense of public virtue or morality. There's no accountability. Maybe you've recognized that the pundits don't have the moral vocabulary to grapple with tragedy. And and so they stumble around when these awful events happen. They don't work from the moral categories of sin and evil and justice. Perhaps you feel it in the rise of the nuns. You know, this, this huge... N-O-N-E-S, by the way, N-O-N-E-S. This this huge increase in the percentage of those who claim no religious affiliation or, or kind of a vague spirituality. And friends, maybe for you, that's not a statistic. That's your dad. That's one of your best friends. That's your prodigal daughter who once identified as a Christian who today identify as a nun. It's disorienting, isn't it? from sexual ethics to religious liberty to gender identity to free speech. Friends, the church is experiencing antichrist-like opposition today in various forms. And it makes us feel kind of unsafe. It makes us feel like we're on this losing side, right? Well, if you have this feeling, many of us have this feeling, God has given us 1 Samuel 22 as an encouragement Today, look one more time at verse 23. Let me read it one more time. It says, stay with me. Don't be afraid for the one who wants to take my life, wants to take your life. Look at this last phrase. You will be safe with me. What a stunning verse. Because, because we have the benefit of standing centuries after this was uttered, we know this is not just a promise. This is a promise that has been fulfilled. Saul doesn't win. David does, and and promises are made to David that his line and lineage are going to continue on even after he dies. God's rule through his king, his word through his prophet, his mediated presence through his priest will continue on with David and then centuries later, of course, with Jesus. Thus, we can say together today, you will be safe if you are with Christ, okay? You will be safe with Christ. Friends, that doesn't mean that your life won't be more cave-like and forest-like than mountain-like. You know, massive tragedy might hit you. Uh, It may look like Jesus is losing in society. You know, our culture might turn against Christ. It feels like it is. It might marginalize the people of God. It seems like that's true. And so your friends or family or coworkers, they might think you're a fool. And even if Satan accuses you, and this is, 
He's the father of lies. He is the accuser. He wants to assault you with lies and condemnations and shame. Even still, even still, we can say, you will be safe with Christ. You cannot thwart God's purposes, and his purpose is to preserve and protect his church. In our story, what do, we, what do we see here in this narrative as we're kind of looking further beyond in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel? We see Saul kind of exiting off the screen in judgment, and we see David continuing on in glory, right? The enemies of God can do nothing but confirm the will of God, even in their oppositions. In other words, friends, God's plans prevail. And if you are with him, you will be safe. One Dutch woman, Corey Ten Boom, found that much of her adult life as a Christian would be more cave-like than mountain-like. During the Holocaust, she helped Jewish refugees, and later she would be, her and her sister actually, would be sent to a concentration camp. And so for her, gathering to Christ meant also gathering, in a sense, to a concentration camp with her sister. Imagine that, friends. But years later, she would say this about her experiences, quote, You need not fear, Christian. Even though the mountains fall into the sea, God doesn't have problems, only plans. There is never panic in heaven. God is faithful. His plans do not fail. So let me just encourage you, brothers and sisters, God wants you to know this morning that he is not muted, helpless, small, restricted, confused, or powerless. He doesn't have problems. Only plans. And even if those plans involve caves and concentration camps, God sees and knows all things. He knows all of the oppositions against his anointed and his church, and none of it surprises him. And so, friends, Jesus Jesus does not promise us long life. He doesn't promise us riches and uninterrupted good health. He doesn't promise the, the, the triumph of Christian values in the marketplace of ideas. He doesn't promise us a favorable response when we're sharing his word. So what does he promise us? He promises us that the subversive kingdom of his son will prevail and that he will keep his church safe within the confines of that great and glorious kingdom. And so, friends, in the midst of all that is sinful, in the midst of all that is tragic in your lives, in the midst of all that is cave-like for you, God wants you to have this sure hope. If you are a Christian, no man, no woman, no government, no law, no power, prince, or potentate can silence the word of God, nor frustrate the plans of God, nor bring ultimate harm to the people of God. If you've gathered to Christ, you will be safe with Christ. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence now to ponder this passage.